you want to make your way back toward your seats, we'll continue uh, with our time together this morning. As a, as a general life rule uh, from here on out, I want you to remember that Joe is right and the slide is wrong. Just pencil that in. Along, husbands, you can pencil that in alongside, I am wrong and my wife is right. Uh, I'm going to ask this morning that you bear with me uh, a little bit. This is, this is about as full force as my voice gets uh, this morning. And so uh, hopefully we at least make it through one service and we're recording back there in case second and third can't happen. But uh, I do earnestly believe that the most important thing I do every week as pastor here is stand before you and open the word of God with you. And so, uh, so long as I could stand on both of my legs... Uh, I was going to be here uh, so that we could do this together. And so uh, we're going to pick up essentially where we left off last week. And that is, we left off with the idea that part of what we should do when we come before Scripture uh, is this threefold sort of process that I laid out at the end of last week's message. And that's that we need to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that what we do when we open God's word is that we should be seeking to see that at all times. And that not only should we seek to see it with our eyes and with our mind, but we should also be seeking to savor it with our hearts. And that in response to seeing and savoring, we submit. And so right at the beginning here of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to pick up in chapter 4 in our reading plan this week. This morning we're going to look at Luke 4 through 6. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Luke chapter 5, so if you have a Bible and you want to open up to there. What I want us to see this morning is the way that seeing and savoring and submitting plays out in the lives of some of the people that Jesus interacts with right at the beginning of his public ministry. And so my hope is that as we see the way that they saw and savored and submitted to Christ as they were living alongside him and interacting with him, that that would be instructive for us as we seek to do the same today, which is to walk alongside Christ and to interact with him. And so that's what we're going to attempt to see this morning. If you would pray with me, uh, we'll continue on. God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for your word and its truth. God, my prayer is that this morning as a congregation, Lord, would we see you clearly? Would we see you more clearly this morning than we see anything else? And that in seeing you, Lord, our hearts would savor. God, would our hearts savor the the beauty of your glory? Would our hearts savor the wonder of your Son sent On our behalf, God, would our hearts savor the fact that by faith in Him, we can step into right relationship with You and have our sin forgiven. And Lord, would Your Spirit be here this morning and move our hearts to places of submission. God, that seeing You, savoring You, Lord, Your Spirit would move us to a place of 
humbling ourselves and surrendering to you and what you might uh, be challenging us with or what you might be illuminating to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to give you an encouragement as you read the Gospels over the next eight weeks or so. And that's, don't overlook the obvious. There are times, in, especially while we're reading the Gospels, where we can totally blow past something that's literally just jumping off the page at us. At times, those are very clear commands from Christ. And yet, we want to either skip over them because they're very familiar, or we want to make them more complicated than they need to be. Don't overlook the obvious. And I want to start with something very obvious this morning. Look with me at Luke chapter 5, verse 1. What's happened up to this point is that Jesus was born. Uh, the kind of Christmas narrative played itself out. There's a genealogy of Christ at the end of Luke chapter 3. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He's led there by the Holy Spirit. He's tempted by Satan uh, for a period of time. He resists that temptation. And then he begins uh, his public ministry with a couple of miraculous interactions. He heals a couple of people. He casts some demons out of some individuals. He's preaching in these synagogues. But it's not like a widespread affair right away. And then this is what Luke 5 verse 1 says. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Jesus hasn't done a lot yet. And yet there's this large crowd that's pressing in on him to hear him speak. And they're equating his words to the word of God. Jesus has done enough already in healing a couple of people and casting a couple of demons out that people are both drawn to him and they're also equating his words with the very words of God themselves. And they just long to be near him. What attracts a crowd, right? Something interesting something different than we see in the norm. That attracts a crowd. My family would go to Disney World a lot when I was growing up. I've mentioned that before. And on one occasion, we were at one of the, uh, one of the theme parks, and there's this mass of people uh, kind of walking around like six and under soccer game, you know, like herd ball. Have you ever watched that play out at a little kid's soccer game? And it's just like this blob kind of morphing its way around the park. And, and that was, there are always a lot of people down there, but it was different for people to be that intensely kind of congregated, but not in line for a ride or something. And we kind of got close enough that I could see, uh, I was like 12 or 13 years old, that the reason all of these people were clumped together is because Shaq was in the middle of it. And if you want to talk about something different than the norm, a seven foot something tall man who's one of the greatest basketball players on earth at the time, that was worthy of a crowd. It attracts our attention. When we talk about the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ, I mentioned last week that the glory of God, a way to kind of think about that is that it's the holiness of God made visible, the otherness of God made visible. That is what Jesus is doing here. 
there's something so different about him and the way that he talks, in the way that he preaches, in the things that he is doing, that it is attracting a crowd. People can't help but just want to be near him. And they begin to call him certain names in interacting with him. And from Luke chapter 4 through Luke chapter 6, these are the different names that you'll hear him called. At one point, he's called teacher. At another point, Peter calls him master. A demon actually calls him the son of God. A leper calls him Lord. Peter, at another time, calls him O Lord. And it's as if those who are attracted to him are beginning to drill down into who this man actually is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just master. He's not just O Lord like you would exclaim to someone at that time who is maybe uh, perceived to be of a higher rank in social status than you. In fact, one demon gets it exactly right. In Luke 4, 34, Jesus casts this demon out and it's as if the demon is fearful for uh, its existence. He says, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon gets it right. In fact, the demon gets it most right before anyone else in the gospel accounts. I find that interesting. That as humanity is working to try to figure out exactly who this Jesus of Nazareth is, there's a demon being cast out of an individual who nails it on the head. You are the Holy One of God. You are God's holiness and otherness made visible to all of humanity. And therein lies the truth of what it means to see Jesus clearly. Seeing the fullness of God on display in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we should see. When we come before Scripture and we read of Christ in the Gospels, when we interact with the Lord in our daily relationship with Him, what we should see at all times is the fullness of God's glory on display in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the holiness of God made perfectly visible. He's the glory of God on display in the redemption of all humanity from sin. And in all of our reading of Scripture and walking with Jesus and relationship with God, we should always come back to the same place. No matter what our current emotional disposition is, no matter what our current circumstances are, we should always come back to the fact that in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior, there is the Holy One of God. That's why there's a crowd. Because the holiness of God is on display in the person and life of Jesus and the glory is majestic and people just cannot help themselves. They have to be near him. They want to hear him talk. They want to see him. They want to touch him. They want to be taught by him. They want to be healed by him. They just want to be in his general vicinity in case Jesus does something miraculous. Whatever equivalent first century uh, 
Palestine had to must-see TV, that was Jesus. You just didn't want to miss it because he might do something so totally other from what is normal humanity that you had to see it for yourself. But something else happens as people are seeing Jesus clearly. Because seeing Jesus clearly enables us to see ourselves clearly. We're going to come back to one passage here in the middle of Luke chapter 5 a couple of times. And it's in Jesus calling his first disciples. And the story revolves around a man named Simon, who would later be renamed Peter. What happens is that Simon and some of his uh, buddies have been out fishing. There's that crowd pressing in around Jesus who wants to hear him teach. And Jesus walks over to his boat and he gets in and he says, put it out into the water. And they put out into the water and they, Jesus teaches for a bit. And when he's done, he says, I want you to drop the nets down. And Peter, Simon kind of pushes back and he says, look, we've been fishing all night and we didn't really catch anything. We were already cleaning the nets. But if you tell me to put the nets down, I'll put the nets down. Jesus says, I want you to put the nets down. And they haul in this incredible catch of fish. And Simon takes one look at the catch of fish. And this is his response. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's so overcome by what he sees happen that he literally asks the Savior of the world to get away from him. Why? It's because Simon, Peter, has just seen the glory-displaying work of Jesus, and instantly he's seen himself clearly in relation. He has just witnessed that Jesus is something other entirely. And he says, I am sinful. You are something different. Go away. Almost as if he's afraid of Jesus. You see, what the catch of fish represents or displays is this visible picture of the otherness of God. It's glorious. And in relation to it, Simon Peter knows, I am not the same. And I'm willing to call myself what I am, sinful. I'm willing to call you what you are, Lord. There's another interaction that Jesus has just following uh, this interaction with Peter, and it involves a leper. It begins in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. And it says, while he was in one of those cities, there, was a, or, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice that he doesn't say, Lord, if you will, you can heal me of my disease. He says, you can make me clean. Leprosy in the days of Jesus and in the Old Testament was taken as a sign of uncleanness. And to be unclean meant that you were unholy. You weren't allowed to go into the temple or to be among the community of the people of Israel. You had to separate yourself. And this man wants to be clean more than he wants to be healthy. He wants to be clean and restored back into community more than he just wants to be healed. 
He wants to be restored, and being healed physically is just a piece of that. He sees and he understands that he's something more than physically ill. Seeing the glory of God on display in the person of Jesus Christ helps us to see ourselves clearly. Away from me, for I am sinful. Lord, if you are willing, you can clean me. As we see Jesus clearly, we see ourselves clearly, and we hold those two things next to each other. And it makes us so that we're able to understand the holiness and the glory of God in an important capacity, and it's this. We begin to see the gap that exists between God's infinite holiness and our finite humanness. And that gap should look like a very wide chasm. Something that we see and we look at and we say, I could not possibly bridge that on my own. I simply cannot. That should elicit something inside of us. And so let's go on. The next thing I said that we should do after we see is that we should savor. What does savoring the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ look like? Well, Luke 4 Five, six, seven, and eight are full of emotion words as people interact with Jesus. Let me just read some of them to you. At one point, there are people who interact with Jesus and they experience fear. At another point, we're told that the people are astonished, that they're amazed, that they're in awe. Just before Luke 4, 5, and 6, we're told that Mary experienced wonder. We see instances of hope and joy, that there's grief over sin, that there's delight in the presence of the Lord, that there's this compassion that extends to other people. And in contrast to those, there are some religious elite at the time who experienced the exact opposite of these emotions. As they see Jesus, they experience anger, Why is that? They experience resentment. What causes that? Well, what causes that is that their hearts aren't ever moved to a place of seeing themselves clearly. They see who Jesus is. But the sin in their own hearts clouds them from ever seeing Jesus clearly or ever seeing themselves clearly. And instead of witnessing the glory of Jesus and being moved to a place of humility, they see Jesus as a threat to their own self-glorification. And rather than humility, what wells up inside of them is pride. And so rather than step into the light of the glory of God and the person of Jesus, like we talked about last week, they would rather remain in the dark. And all throughout the gospel accounts, whether you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, what you see is this group of self-righteous religious people who aren't willing to see clearly who Jesus is and therefore can't ever see themselves clearly. They just want to push back and fight against Jesus at every turn. They don't ever truly have their heart stirred and broken and humbled by the reality of who Jesus Christ is. So here's what I'm driving at. That in order to savor the glory of God in the person of Jesus, we must be willing to be stirred. 
We've got to be willing to move beyond just intellectual engagement with the person of Jesus Christ to the point where our heart is actually affected by who God is, by who Christ is. The crux of the issue is that we have to allow our heart to be stirred by the person and the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. And part of what that means is that savoring requires us not to rush through our reading of Scripture or our time with the Lord. You'll notice something as you read throughout the Gospels, and that's that Jesus is not ever in a hurry. You never catch Jesus rushing from one appointment to the next. You never see Jesus trying to just heal someone quickly so that he can move on and do the next thing. But you'll also notice something else, that the people around him are never in a hurry either. They may be desperate. They may be clamoring for just a touch of Jesus' robe, but they aren't in a rush to get into his presence and then move on. There's this lingering and abiding. There's this desire to remain. They not only want to see Jesus, they want to be near him for as long as they possibly can. They don't want to just check quiet time off the list in the morning. They don't want to just check off, did I or did I not spend time reading the Bible? Did I or did I not pray today? They want to linger in the presence of Christ. They want to savor His presence. Some other ways to think about savoring. They want to relish the presence of Jesus. They want to linger in the presence of Jesus. They want to soak in it, to rest in it, to abide in it. Which leads me to ask you a couple of questions that you can spend some time reflecting on later. Do you regularly make an intentional effort to just stop in the presence of the Lord? No time restriction. No list of things to do that starts with quiet time at the top. Does your heart just long to rest in the presence of Christ? I can tell you when I get truly moved to this place is when life gets busiest for me. And there's a long list of things to do and people to meet with and individuals to talk to. And I can just feel my heart pulling, not away from those individuals, but pulling to be in the presence of the Lord. When you read in Scripture, do you have the same kind of emotional responses that the people around Jesus have? Astonishment, amazement, awe, delight, compassion. Do you experience grief over your sin? Or does something different well up inside of you? When you read about Jesus and you see the commands that he makes or you see the, the statements that he makes, is there something else inside of you that looks more like anger and resentment that wells up? Do you reflect upon or witness the work of God in your own life? You actually stop when something happens and say, that was of the Lord. And I just want to take a second to enjoy it. 
I want to take a second to be thankful. I just want to rest in the presence of what God has just done in my life. You can reflect on those later. The last thing I mentioned in this kind of structure for how it is that we relate to the Lord is that we see, we savor, and then we submit. In Luke 4, 5, and 6, you're going to read uh, about a number of individuals that Jesus interacts with. And I want to just ruin the ending of every one of those stories for you. Simon Peter and his buddies see Jesus catch all those fish and they follow him at his request. The leper is told to go show himself to the priest but not not make a big show out of it and that's exactly what he does. There's a paralytic who's told to stand up and walk and he does. Levi is called to follow Jesus from his tax collecting booth and he does. Back in chapter four, there's a woman who's healed by Jesus. She has a fever and apparently it must be really bad and Jesus rebukes the fever. The fever leaves her, and once it does, without any sort of command for her to do so, we're told that she starts serving Jesus. She saw what he did, she savored it, and submission for her in that moment meant service. We could back up a little further, and there's these instances that Jesus has with a couple of demons. When Jesus tells a demon to do something, they do it. They do it immediately. In response to the reality of who Jesus is, they submit. They don't have a choice. In fact, the two statements that these two different demons make are, I know who you are, the Holy One of God that I've already mentioned. And the other one says, you are the Son of God. They know exactly who Christ is. And they have to do what he says. I want to take two very specific looks here as we close. I want to go back to the story of Simon and Jesus and the calling of Jesus' first disciple. And then I want us to look at something in chapter 6. I'm just going to read the story. I'm going to begin in verse 2. We already read verse 1. Beginning in Luke chapter 5, it says this, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both their boats so that it began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had just taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter gets this up-close clear look at who Jesus is. There's this unbelievable catch of fish, so much so that it's sinking the boat. But the miracle isn't Jesus' attempt to provide some sort of economic relief to some weary fishermen. And Peter knows that to be the case. He knows it because he sees it. He sees the holiness, the otherness of God in the person of Jesus. 
And he savors it so much that he would rather be in the presence of Jesus than go get the financial gain of selling the fish. Don't overlook the obvious. When this story ends, there are two boatloads of fish sitting at a dock getting smelly in the sun. They had worked all night and were frustrated by their lack of a catch. There's an unbelievable amount of financial gain sitting in those boats, but having seen the person of Jesus Christ, they want nothing more than to follow him, than to be with him. Seeing Jesus clearly through this miraculous catch of fish causes Peter and his buddies not just to love the gift, but to love the giver. They savor the person of Jesus Christ. And so they follow him according to the calling of Jesus. And I want to posit this morning that submission to Christ always begins with an invitation into mission. God's work since the beginning has been to redeem humanity from their sin, back into relationship with him for the sake of his name being made known to all the families of the earth. That was, that's what was told to Abraham. When we have seen and savored the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the first calling he always gives us is to go fish. To take the message of the gospel to those who don't know it. To spread the glory. To follow Jesus into the work of proclaiming his holiness to all the nations of the earth. I want to look at chapter 6 really briefly as well. You'll notice this as you read the entirety of Luke chapter 6. But Jesus calls all of his disciples to him, and he names the twelve. That begins in Luke 6 verse 12. And they immediately go out and they minister to this great crowd's worth of people. And in so doing, Jesus begins what is Luke's recorded version of the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he describes two different groups of people, those who are blessed and those who he's uh, proclaiming this warning to. Woe to you. (coughs) Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who weep. But then he says, woe to you who are rich, who are full, who laugh now. And then there's this turning point in verse 27. But I say to you who hear. The group that hears is the first group, the ones who see Jesus clearly, who see themselves clearly, who savor him for salvation. And what comes next in the remaining portion of Luke chapter 6 is an unbelievable string of commands from the Lord. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. To the one who, or to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes from you your goods, do not demand them back. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Judge not and you will not be judged. The string of commands. Then he ends with two quick parables. One about a tree and its fruit and one about a house and its foundation. There's good trees that bear good fruit, or good fruit, bad trees that bear bad fruit. There's a solid foundation in a house that stands. There's a loose foundation in a house that collapses. 
If you see and you savor, you end up a good tree with good fruit. If you see and you savor, you build a house on a firm and a solid foundation. But the good fruit and standing on a solid foundation come from the second point of submission, and that's that submission always involves an invitation into transformation. We see, we savor, or we relish, or we linger, or we abide, or we rest, and then we savor. I want our, we submit. And I want to give you one other word. Maybe submit doesn't sound great to you. Maybe you'd rather think of it as surrender. See, you savor, and you surrender. In the early part of Jesus' ministry, those who come into contact with him cannot help but see him and see themselves to savor him and then to submit to him. And a couple thousand years later, the calling for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ is the exact same. That having seen Christ and savored him for our salvation, we would submit to him. And that submission, that surrendering involves a calling into mission to share the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth and a calling into transformation to constantly be changed into the image of Jesus Christ that we might display through our own transformed brokenness the glory of God to those who need salvation. We're going to spend the last uh, bit of our time in worship this morning. And this first song we're going to sing is all about surrender. I want to ask this morning that as we spend the last bit of our time here in worship, maybe what you need to do this morning for the very first time is see Jesus clearly for who he is. And if that's the case, I'd invite you to find one of our staff members. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe this morning you're someone who's already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and I just want to invite you to savor him as we worship. In either of those cases, I want to challenge you to consider this morning, what does submission to him look like? Is that stepping into mission alongside him, proclaiming his greatness, his glory to the ends of the earth? Or is it that there's some aspect of transformation that the Holy Spirit has been prompting you toward for quite some time that you finally need to submit or surrender to? Stand up and let's sing.